providing real solutions for real industry challenges. Welcome to FNF Unplugged, the talk of the title industry. Hey, Chuck, thanks for joining us. You are just back from the MBA Regulatory Compliance Conference in D.C. What can you tell us about the overall themes and the concerns of the regulators and the attorneys who work with the regulators? Uh, What's going on right now? Brian, thank you. And uh, yes, recording this literally two days after the convention concluded in D.C. And just for those not familiar with the compliance meeting, which is generally in September every year, uh, and this was a live face-to-face meeting, it consists of senior regulators from the CFPB, from FHA, VA, HUD, who come to talk to not just the in-house counsel, because that's who a lot of the people who are there are in-house counsel for the major lenders. Now, as many of you could probably imagine and are aware, some of the larger banks still have do not travel orders. So, so there were quite a few people who would normally attend who weren't there, but they were joining virtually. But you have the in-house counsel, the compliance counsel for the lenders, and then uh, the major law firms who represent the lenders, or as I like to say to my friends who are in those firms, outhouse counsel. But uh, <laughs> these are the people who uh, represent lenders when they do have problems with regulators and uh, both on a state and federal level. So uh, it is uh, you know, a room of 375 attorneys, which I'm sure to many people sounds like the third level of hell. Um, but uh, it is one of the better um, meetings, I think, annually, where the entire real estate industry can get an idea about how the regulators see things in Washington. And, and certainly, you know, the themes of this convention, because this was the first one, obviously, since the Biden administration came in. And we still have an awful lot of acting personnel and acting directors. In fact, it was pointed out that many people have been nominated. And we do have, obviously, a HUD secretary, but most of the rest of the positions, senior positions, we still have acting directors because they have not yet been approved by the Senate for one reason or another. That poses its own problems in terms of policy creation because you've got acting directors who, in most cases, in the case of, for example, the CFPB, you have acting director Wagio and the nominated director Chopra, who are probably pretty much shoulder to shoulder is how they see things. But you can't really go in and start doing policy changes until you have a full-time director or to have rule submission. That being said, you know, the themes that uh, came out of this convention and several of the federal regulators said, here are our marching orders from the White House. COVID recovery, COVID recovery, both as to health and safety, obviously, but economic recovery for COVID and personal financial recovery in regard to COVID. And that's where the lenders and uh, the federal regulators that uh, were in attendance, that's the focus really is as to individuals and how they have been affected by COVID in terms of keeping their house, making their payments, things of that nature. The second overriding theme from the White House is racial equity. 
And uh, I think you've all seen that. And we'll talk more about these themes as we go forward here in the conversation, Brian. But racial equity is an overriding theme through all aspects of the Biden administration. The third major theme of the Biden administration is climate change. And actually, we will talk a little bit about climate change. Most of the listeners here think, well, I know, how am I going to really have an impact on climate change? Not so much the impact of climate change, but the impact that climate change may have on you. And of course, you know, putting this forward, uh, there's still an all lot of controversy about the causes of climate change, about uh, why certain things are happening. But it was quite clear from the speakers, from places like CoreLogic, there is climate change. They see climate change. It has been coming for the last few years. And there have been a lot of things that have gone on just in the last few weeks. Certainly anybody who lives in Southern Louisiana can tell you there's been a lot more rain from these storms than at any time in anyone's living memory. And these things are hot issues. I would say, though, the fourth item, and not so much as something that uh, the administration is uh, pushing as the top of their agenda, though there has been the call for a White House conference on this, is cybersecurity and privacy concerns. And certainly the nominated director for the Bureau, Mr. Chopra, at the FTC and when he was at the CFPB originally discussed these. And as we know in our industry, entitlement settlement, privacy and cybersecurity certainly have been uh, top items for us for some time. So those are the overriding themes, but the COVID recovery, the racial equity and, and climate change topics, those are the themes the White House has pushed out to the regulators that they need to develop policy surrounding. I want to come back to climate change here in a bit. Living out on the West Coast, we experience it here, too. We can talk about that. But first, I want to unpack uh, the COVID piece. You know, you contrast where we're at right now with where we were 10 years ago with the quote unquote housing crisis. We know it was much bigger than that, of course, but you, know, you you look at what's going on now with the amount of foreclosures or pre-foreclosures, I should say, uh, that are out there, the potential for, quite honestly, disaster if it wasn't handled correctly. Big difference in how they're handling it this time versus 10 years ago. Obviously, we learned a lot from that, but it sounds like the message is to the lenders, let's try and work this out, Right. Oh, I think most definitely. And the Bureau sent out uh, a memo to mortgage servicers a few months ago where there was, uh, I think anyone could discern, there was a real wagging of the finger, so to speak. Uh, But you better do a good job in helping people in modifications of their mortgages who are are coming out of forbearance. And, you know, I think there's certain things, and as we move forward, the foreclosure crisis that we had in uh, from 2008 to 2010, we're in a very different circumstance today than we were then. One is housing prices crashed. Housing prices have done anything but crash. In fact, the most recent data I saw is the average sale price, the median sale price of a home in the United States is just short of $360,000. In California, Today, I saw the median sale price of a house in California slightly exceeds $800,000. That's the state of California. That's not Orange County or the city of San Francisco. That's California. So whether you're living in Orange County or living in Death Valley, that all enters into the median. So there's a tremendous amount of equity 
in the properties, which we did not have going back here uh, during the mortgage meltdown. And in forbearance, throughout forbearance, about a third or 30% of people who signed up for forbearance actually continue to make their mortgage payments. People signed up for it on the if come that, well, maybe I lose my job. Maybe I better sign up for this program now in case I need it. But in fact, they continue to make their payments. Somewhere in around a quarter of the people in forbearance refinanced. They were at 5 or 6%. They went in to refinance. They got their rate down below 3%. And so probably in a better position to make their payments. So coming out of forbearance, the, the real issue, and it was raised at this conference, is that there's going to be tens of thousands of homeowners who have loans outstanding coming out of forbearance a week and that mortgage servicers are going to have to address this as to mortgage modification. What are they gonna do? And of course, there will be those circumstances where the person's upside down, they just aren't going to avoid foreclosure. But one thing which we have, again, because we have so much equity, if you have a property where they are going into delinquency and then default, that house is probably sellable which wasn't the case before. We had short sales. We had lenders who were taking haircuts about how much was owed. We don't have that problem today throughout most of the United States. I mean, there's certain markets where there's an issue and the high delinquency rate is in the FHA market. Conventional loan delinquencies are higher than they were pre-COVID. They are in VA, but they're way higher in FHA. It's coming down. It's improving, but it's in that segment of the housing market. But as you know, Brian, and uh, as any real estate agent or broker can tell you, any house that the plumbing still works in is a sellable home. Yep. And so, you know, I don't think we're going to see that same sort of problem in the residential sector. And I was not hearing that that we were going to have so much of a problem, other than the modification process. And again, the regulators adamant that um, the mortgage servicers and the lenders who need to modify these loans, they do a proper job. They do everything they possibly can to be sure that that borrower has had every reasonable opportunity to fix their problem before it goes into delinquency and default. That was heard by the lenders there and the lenders, the council who were there who were both in-house and then those represent lenders, they get it that they're going to do that. Where we may see, and this was raised by several people that I spoke with, you know, as far as foreclosure rates, it's going to be perhaps in some of the uh, four to 10 family rental space and also in um, some of the, uh, the four unit strip centers. A tremendous number of those properties in the United States are owned by what we refer to as mom and pop investors. It is somebody who owns one or two, four families that they rent out, or they own a four-unit strip center that they rent out. When those come out of forbearance, there's going to be a real question if they've not gotten the rents because we have rent forbearance. We're going to have rent forbearance continue on in some jurisdictions, perhaps as long as the end of the year or longer. And what do you do? If you know you own that building, you're paying the taxes, you're paying the upkeep, and perhaps you're paying an underlying loan. Likewise, in those four-unit strip centers, you know, unless you live in a state 
where two of your tenants are a liquor store and a marijuana dispensary, which, as we know, in those states where they're legal, are viewed as essential businesses. But uh, you may have a problem with your tenants being able to pay back rent. And then where are you? So there may be more in that segment. And that segment doesn't quite have the same marketability that the residential segment has overall. So we may see uh, we may see some of that as well, but uh, we're not going to see the same sort of problems. We will see an uptick, and generally consensus was that in the first quarter, by that time the lenders will have shaken it out as to which loans are going to go into uh, default and uh, follow up from there. So we probably will see some uptick in the first quarter in the residential sector, but more likely in that small commercial sector where, again, you have mom and pop investors who simply have not been collecting money and now they're they're bust. They got to move on. Yeah. You know, the racial equity situation we are dealing with in this country, obviously a very high priority across the board and particularly in real estate where it translates to fair housing, fair lending initiatives. Uh, we've talked about this. Uh, the Convergence podcast we did here a uh, few months back, great podcast delving into the issues the title and settlement industry faces when it comes to, you know, chain of title and so forth. What does the administration expect from lenders and how does that translate to title and settlement? What's the latest here? Well, the administration expects all mortgage lenders, all lenders of all types, not just mortgage lenders, but mortgage lenders being tied to housing, obviously that they expect mortgage lenders to take initiatives to address the issue of racial equity. And and obviously, I mean, you know, when, when we get into this, racial equity and the driving force has, by and large, you know, involved, uh, you know, the, the, the United States Black population, but also the Latino population and, and other groups, Asian, other groups. It is certainly, again, going back to, you know, housing affordability, the availability of credit has improved in the last few months. There's And, and the MBA showed statistics to show that improvement in credits. It is not as good, obviously, uh, among um, Black applicants or Latino applicants as it is for white applicants. And that's the issue to be addressed. But again, talking about you know, median home price, just short of $360,000, median home price in California, $800,000. That's a problem for somebody who has a household income where you've got two income earners and they're making $75,000 a year. So there is an expectation of programs to be brought together. There was discussion of the fact, um, the expansion of the Community Reinvestment Act. Those of you who are my age remember when that all came together in the 1990s where banks were compelled to make a certain amount of loans in uh, certain um, communities that were underserved. And uh, the banks could enter into uh, exceptional programs as to credit or appraisal to get people into homes. Well, three states, Illinois, Massachusetts, and New York, have passed state laws extending the CRA mandates to non-bank mortgage lenders. And there was much discussion about whether the federal government would look for an amendment to drive CRA to include non-bank mortgage lenders. That would be a huge sea change for non-bank mortgage lenders because banks 
historically on from a business basis. They look at this and it's like, well, okay, but we can, you know, develop other business lines where we can get other revenue streams. So if we're making loans, we're not making as much money. Overall, it's better for the, the communities. We can find other ways to, um, you know, cross-sell some of the other programs we have. We have credit cards, auto loans, whatever else. So that, you know, we're in a circumstance where at the end of the day, we're, we're doing what the federal government wants us to do. We're doing what's good for communities. And, you know, we're breaking even. Non-bank mortgage lenders don't have all those various lines of business. And so this is a big topic. And there was much discussion uh, about uh, whether or not we'd see a CRA extension into non-bank mortgage lenders. Another issue which the conversation began with mortgage servicers has to do with people with limited English proficiency. And right now, we have a bill churning through Congress. It's passed uh, financial services. It's in the uh, Veterans Affairs Committee in the House that is proposed by Representative Garcia out of Houston, Texas. But it would amend RESPA and TILA to compel lenders in regard to their disclosures to directly address people of limited English proficiency. In the bill, it discusses that lenders would have to determine in their marketplaces, what are the four leading non-English languages in your community, in your marketplace? And marketplace, of course, can be broadly defined. And whatever those are, you better have disclosure materials and marketing materials in those languages. And so certainly, I mean, I think, you know, most people would think, well, of course, you know, Spanish. Spanish is generally the leading non-English language in the United States. In California, Texas, Florida, three of our largest states, Spanish is very common as it is in Arizona, it is in the, uh, the Northeast Metro and many of our major cities. But then when you get into number two and number three and number four, and uh, Jeff McAvoy from Home Surety Title, who was our guest a few months ago on the podcast, Jeff's based in Memphis, and he is involved in the convergence program in Memphis. Well, the number two foreign language, not English language, spoken in Memphis is Mandarin. And Jeff has two people who speak Mandarin. And he said every day they are speaking to people on the phone in Mandarin. The limited English proficiency is going to be a huge issue. And it's going to be an issue for those of us in title and settlement because and it won't necessarily just be because you're dealing with one of the top five mortgage lenders, but if you're dealing with a community lender, because they are regulated by these same institutions, by the OCC, by HUD, by the CFPB, they are all going to be regulated by this because if this is an amendment to TILA, it's going to change it for everybody. And so if you're talking to a community lender who has you know, three, three bank offices in a city, they're going to have to make these same determinations. And it was made very clear, both by some of the regulators and by some of the council who were speaking at the event, that settlement service providers, which includes us, but also appraisers, a wide variety of other people, settlement service providers for lenders are going to have to address this same issue. So it's something that if you're entitled in settlement, you better start thinking about, well, in my community, and whatever my community is, whether I'm in one town, one county, three counties, 26 states, what are those languages? Talk to your lenders. What are they thinking about? Because, again, legal documents will be in English. It is the legal language of the United States. 
that is not going to change. But disclosure documents may need to be in a variety of non-English languages. And what do you have on your website as a title agent? Do you have anything on there? You may have people who speak Spanish in your office. Are you advertising it? You better. If you have other opportunities, you have other personnel who uh, can uh, speak with people where English is their second language and they have proficiency problems, advertise that. Advertise it as soon as possible and get that out there. In part two of our conversation, Chuck shares more from the MBA's Regulatory Compliance Conference, including what could be a major upcoming requirement for title and settlement agents. That and much more in our next episode of FNF Unplugged. If you have questions, comments, or would like us to feature a specific topic, email fnfeducation at fnf.com. Thanks for downloading FNF Unplugged, a presentation of the FNF family of companies. All rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, including Fidelity National Financial or its directors. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.